I want to ask you if you would to turn to the book of Acts. We are picking up in our study of Acts in uh, chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 4. As I was preparing this week, I came across an old story that I heard years ago. Uh, uh, Musician and author Michael Card, you might have heard of him. Uh, In the early 90s, he wrote an article, I think it's called Wounded in the House of a Friend. And he tells the story of this uh, Maasai warrior from East Africa. His name is Joseph. And uh, he tells a story about that guy going to a Billy Graham convention and sharing his story of conversion in some of his earliest days as a Christian and uh, pretty astounding um, He told Billy Graham himself, he said, I was just kind of walking down a dirt road one day and I came across a traveler who was a believer. He shared the gospel with me and I received Christ right there. And then his first thought after doing that was I'm gonna return back to my village and I'm gonna tell everybody in my village because none of them had heard of Christ. He was gonna share Christ with all of the people in his village. So you can understand he's very excited, goes back and uh, he just basically goes from hut to hut. And uh, as he's sharing the gospel and talking about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the the goodness of the gospel, there's no excitement, there's no joy, nobody's happy about it. These people become enraged. You guys remember two weeks ago when we talked about how the people responded to Stephen as he was sharing the gospel? That's exactly what was happening. It got so bad that... The men of the tribe basically took Joseph, held him down, and the women beat him with barbed wire. And they beat him until he was close to death. They drug him out into the bush and left him to die. Here's what Michael wrote uh, after that. Somehow Joseph managed to crawl to a water hole and there after days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. He wondered, about the hostile, he wondered about the hostile reception he had received from people he had known all his life. He decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. After rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. That's a beautiful setup for what we're going to see this morning as we get into the book of Acts. And if you'll remember, as we left off two weeks ago in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, a great persecution had arose. Remember, right after Stephen had been stoned and all of the believers that were in Jerusalem were told were scattered They ran out of town, except for the apostles. They remained in Jerusalem. And so it's a cliffhanger. We're we're just wondering, what are these people going to do? They've seen their friend stoned to death because he was talking about Jesus. So are they going to talk about Jesus? They're scattered. Pick up the story in verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
There, there ought to be just this grand celebration, just a relief that the story is going to continue. More people are going to hear about Jesus. So it's, it is amazing that they did that. It's reassuring. It's inspirational. It's also a little bit convicting, isn't it? These believers were scattered, but not silenced. Praise God. I think it's helpful for us to remember that we don't know what we know if they didn't do what they did. This is how it's always worked in God's redemptive plan. And and Luke seems to make a point of, of this progression of the gospel five times We're told about gospel proclamation. Verse four, we're told about preaching the word. Verse five, uh, Philip proclaimed the Christ. Verse 12, they were preaching good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, they testified and spoke the word of the Lord. And then also in verse 25, it talks about preaching the gospel. So there are two vital aspects of God's redemptive plan as it relates to us. God is doing God's stuff, but but we have some stuff. First of all, people are mentioned in every one of these things. The, The gospel doesn't just sort of pop into the atmosphere. It is spoken by people preaching, proclaiming, testifying, and all of those people have to personally be engaged. They're not made to do it. They choose to do it. And then secondly, there's a message. And and here we actually see different kinds of descriptions or references to what we could put under the umbrella of the gospel. It's the word. It is Christ. It is good news. And I I guess we should ask the question, was the message clear then and is it still clear today? Because that is the emphasis of what's going on. There's different people, there's different players, there's lots of things going on here, but there's one thing consistent through it all and that is the gospel. Paul, who we heard was ravaging the church as Saul couple of weeks ago, he writes this in Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel. The scene that Luke is going to paint here in the rest of chapter 8 helps us understand and appreciate the power of the gospel for the salvation of everyone who believes. Um, I'm gonna put it this way. I think we have five gospel gains that we're gonna see as we work through this passage. And I want to recommend a book that Jeff and I have mentioned countless times. Uh, If you've never read it, gosh, I would just say go get it. It's called The Gospel Primer. It's a short little book written by Milton Vincent And it is just basically a ton of devotions around the effect of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the meaning of the gospel, the effect of it on our lives. Uh, Great, great devotional 
tool. So five gospel gains. Here's the first one. The gospel breaks through human hostility. That's one of the things that the gospel does as it is proclaimed. It breaks through human hostility. Look at verse five. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip is mentioned here. He's our evangelist. If you'll remember, he was chosen with Stephen. Remember, seven were chosen to take care of a group of widows that were being neglected within the early church. That was in Acts chapter six. So he's one of those seven men. But he is not only taking care of these neglected widows, he's an evangelist. He leaves town, he leaves Jerusalem and goes to Samaria, goes north of Judea, up into the region of Samaria. Now, if we know our geography and we know our history, that is shocking. Jews do not go to Samaria. If they can, they go around Samaria. They hate Samaritans. And it goes way back hundreds and hundreds of years, but there was a great divide within the nation of Israel and the northern tribes were taken off into captivity, captivity into Assyria. When they returned, they mixed with the culture that was there. And so they were considered by the Jews half-breeds. The Samaritans actually adopted an idea that they were the genuine ones, the genuine people of God. So they didn't think any better of the Jews than the Jews thought of them. So huge divide between these two groups of people. And Philip decides to take the gospel there. He decides to tell them about Jesus So it's shocking that he goes. It's shocking that they paid attention to him. They could have easily just stoned him because he would have been considered uh, heretical, uh, if you want to put it in that language. They did believe in a coming Messiah, just not a Jewish one. They figured that it was all going to revolve around them. So there is this great divide But the gospel, as Philip understands it, compels him to go to a place of hostility. I think in his mind, he would have said, you know, the only way this is ever going to get resolved is if both of us believe the same thing. And there were plenty of Jews that didn't believe the gospel, right? So maybe there's some of these folks in Samaria that will believe it. Uh, I guess most surprising of all is the mention of joy that was spreading throughout the city because Philip showed up, talked about Jesus, and then the power of God was displayed through his life. The gospel breaks through human hostility. 
A couple of questions maybe to consider as we start into this chapter. Where would it be most difficult for you to share the gospel? Are there any hostile people? You could think politics. You could think morality. You could think socioeconomic. But whatever category you want, where would it be hard for you to go? and tell them about Jesus. And then the other question that I was asking myself is, what's my JQ, my joy quotient? Do people see me, and if they were to know that I'm a Christian, go, that's the reason that he has so much joy in his life. It's because he knows Jesus, and that's what that does in a person's life. It brings joy. So just some things to consider as a professor of mine used to say, way too convicting. Let's keep moving. The second gospel gain. The gospel outshines earthly greatness. The gospel outshines earthly greatness. Verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Kind of an interesting development here. So we're introduced to this guy named Simon. He lives in this city of Samaria, and it says that he practiced magic. Now, just as an aside, think about what we just read that Philip went there and he is exercising demons. He is healing the paralyzed, right? Lame people are getting... That's pretty spectacular, right? It might seem to some kind of magical. So what's the difference? What's the difference between what Simon was doing and what Philip was doing? Well, they were both spectacular, but one is rooted in... A person, the magician, and the other is rooted in the activity of God. So in a sense, it's like, who gets the credit? That helps us understand the source or the origin of whatever it is that's taking place. Um, I guess you could even say that Simon is a bit of an evangelist, except he's he's not proclaiming Christ He's not telling people about Jesus. Who's he talking about? Himself. He's the hero. He's the savior. These people were actually saying he was the power of God that is called great. They would have associated him in some way with the divine. And he's glad to have that, right? That makes him look great. That was the title that he took. And yet Philip is talking about something completely different. He is proclaiming Christ. 
Now, what is so interesting is, as Philip starts doing his thing and talking about Jesus, there is this shift by all of all those who are watching. They hear the message, they believe, they are baptized, and notice that their attention shifts from Simon to Philip. What do you think was happening in Simon? This is his, this is his life. He has put everything into being and doing all that he is being and doing. And now it's being taken away. I heard one pastor talk about, like, why, why did Simon believe? And then why does he start following Philip around? And it was kind of like, well, if you can't beat him, join him. <laughs> Get on the bandwagon. Stay in the show. And we're going to find out that's not going to work for Simon or for anyone else. But somehow, as Simon saw the signs and heard the message, he was amazed. The one who was claiming to be something great actually began to notice that there was someone greater, something bigger than him. And I thought this, that counterfeits pale in comparison when seen next to the real deal. Like when you put them side by side, you start to see the reality there. Worldly greatness is alluring, but it's fleeting. It has no lasting power. Think about all of the earthly achievements that we know of in our day. They've all been surpassed. Eventually, those great ones kind of fade away because there's somebody new that's great from a worldly perspective in our midst. Looking at these Samaritans, they heard and they believed the gospel and they were fundamentally changed on the inside. They went from death to life and, and they were no longer amazed with Simon. They were amazed at the good news that they could be the enemies of God and yet be forgiven and made right with him and brought into relationship with him. Isn't that more significant than some trick, some illusion? They were baptized, which means they identified with the message and the person of the message, Jesus Christ. They declared their trust in Jesus and note He's not just a Messiah, he's a Jewish Messiah. So something very significant has happened here. The gospel, it breaks through earthly hostility and it uh, outshines earthly greatness. The third gain has to do with these two groups of people, the Jews and the Samaritans. And it is this, the gospel integrates the ever-expanding community of faith. We really have to work hard to see this differently than we see today. So hundreds of churches within probably 10 miles of us, right? They're everywhere. And we just think of, like, which church do you go to? And there's 100 different versions. And that's just in our little town or our little county or our little state. They're all over the world, 
before here, there's one church, literally one church in one city, Jerusalem, that's it. And then these believers are scattered and it looks like a new community of faith is being formed. So what's the relationship between this group of people and the first group of people? That's what we find out here. Look in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands, Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so word gets back to Jerusalem that the Samaritans received the gospel. And that word received there, you can exchange that for believed. They entrusted their lives to Christ. And again, based on everything that I've told you so far, that would have been shocking They would have heard news of that and thought, never in a million years, that's the last place I would expect the gospel to get traction. And yet they get word that the Samaritans have believed. And so they send Peter and John. And I'll just say this about just this little section. There are so many things here from a church history perspective and just ecclesiology, like how churches are led, how they function, their organization. It's just interesting to me how this is descriptive, not prescriptive, and yet power brokers in the big C church throughout all of human history have used this to basically justify whatever power moves they make to control the church. It seems to me safe to assume that the apostles sent Peter and John for at least three reasons, probably more, but here they are. First of all, they're just verifying the continuity of the message, right? Remember the gospel? That's the most important thing. So they hear that there's a response in Samaria and all they want to do is just make sure, did you guys believe the same gospel that we did? Because if you did, then we're family. If you didn't, we got to work through some stuff. So first thing, second thing, I think they went to affirm the evangelistic ministry of Philip. He's not one of the apostles, probably younger, more inexperienced. He didn't run around with Jesus. Yet he went out, he was scattered. And so they get to come alongside and say, hey, everything that you heard from Philip, this is the real deal. Good job, Philip. God is using you to expand his church. So I think that's a reasonable uh, assumption that, that they sent them there to do that. Lastly, I think they were sent to address the delayed outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's keep in mind, everything that is happening to the church and around the church is new. It's not as if there's centuries of of template there, which they can go, oh, well, this is always what happens. Because in one sense, and this is really around the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is given later, 
The, an, in another instance, the Holy Spirit is given earlier or simultaneously. There's just a lot of different things going on here. In some cases, hands are laid on those who have believed. In other cases, they're not. So there's a lot happening here, again, that is descriptive, not prescriptive. There doesn't seem to be any question at all about the content of what the Samaritans believed, uh, nor that they believed it. That all seems to be in place. The people received or believed the word of God. They were baptized, but the Holy Spirit, it says, had not yet fallen on any of them. Now, as readers, if we're thinking about the story of Acts, that should sort of ring a bell. Because remember Pentecost in Acts 2? Remember, you have a group of disciples, all of whom have trusted in Jesus. Jesus says, remain in Jerusalem until what? Until you receive the Holy Spirit. So there's a delay. So... That, that seems okay, but they're probably going to try and figure out why didn't they get the Spirit right when they believed, and do we need to play some kind of role in that? So they come into Samaria. They meet the people. They affirm the belief, and then it says they lay hands on them, and the Spirit comes. doesn't tell us how they know that. Maybe we could assume that the same manifestation of the Spirit in Acts 2 could have been here, but it really doesn't matter. According to Luke, everybody understood they believed the right message, and they were given the same Spirit here that they were given in Jerusalem. Now, let's think about that. If that is the case, then there's no difference between Judea and Samaria, Jews and Samaritans, they've all believed the same message. They are one in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is the key to their unity. So when Peter and John lay their hands or consecrate these believers and the Spirit falls, it really just serves to integrate this new community of faith with the existing community of faith. They're not doing something magical. They're simply serving in the role that they were given as apostles to lead the church and to establish the unity there. Belief in the gospel is the singular action that ushers every believer into the family of God. Jesus is the only way, according to him, the only way to come to the Father and all who trust in him receive the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of their inheritance, not as a result of some external mechanism. Here's the pattern, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Paul says to believers in Ephesus, in him, that is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the pattern. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's what we see over the course of time as church history plays its way out. Now, next in Luke's description, the story takes another kind of strange turn. We get back to... 
Simon. And I think the gain that we get here is that the gospel exposes selfish ambition. And that's a gift. It doesn't feel great, but it is a gift. Look at verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This causes a lot of questions in a lot of people's minds. Was, was he really a believer? What, what's his motive here? Does he really just want to give the Holy Spirit away? Is that really what he's interested in or is it something else? At the very least, we can say Simon was an opportunist. And he saw an opportunity here. And he thought, hey, I got some cash. Maybe that will get me in the club. Based on Peter's response, we find that he is way out of bounds. Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Two problems. First of all, Simon assumed that the gift of God could be bought. And it's not for sale. Never has been, never will be. It's a free gift. And then he thought that he could use this gift for his own benefit. Now, that's an interpretive choice on my part and many others. But when I see all these phrases, your heart is not right before God. He's described it to be uh, controlled by wickedness. Uh, The intent of his heart needs to be forgiven. And he is in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Like none of that sounds good to me. So I'm thinking that he has misunderstood the nature of why he would be given the gift of God in the first place. And it's not a little tool that you get to use to promote yourself as you used to, Simon. But now everything is going to change. I thought of a, a little passage in James. I wonder if James might have said this to Simon. You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you have asked wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So Peter is saying, Simon, you would rather be a friend with the world 
and dink around with the trinkets of this world than to be in relationship with the living God, to be forgiven and made right, full of joy. That's the exchange that you're making. So what do you want? That's that's the option that he's been given. And it, it is odd to me. Peter says, you need to repent and ask the Lord to forgive you. And what does he do? Peter, you pray for me. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking someone to pray for you, but why doesn't he just get right to it? He's confronted. So there's a lot of questions here about Simon, and there's no need to try and determine what happened to him. He is considered the father of heretics, by the way, just in church tradition. But he, he, he hears the goodness in the confrontation of the gospel. It just shows him that his ambition is for earthly things instead of those things that are eternal. He has a sense of entitlement instead of a sense of indebtedness. Paul says that we are debtors not to the flesh but to live by the spirit because he has been so kind to us. Well, this seems to kind of wrap up. We have a conclusion of sorts, but the story continues. Look in verse 25. Now, when they, that is Peter and John, had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So this new community of faith apparently is established in whichever Samaritan city they're in, and then it just begins to spread right there. It's scattering. And that's the, five, the fifth gospel gain. The gospel always has another place to go. And it always will until Jesus returns. And so you and I, we, we, we've said this Dozens of times, but we are gospel couriers. We have heard, we have believed, we have been baptized, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit in us, and so we take the message of Christ everywhere we go, and there's always another place to go. Whether it's across the street or around the world, that is what we're here for. That is mission one. Everything else is secondary. And so what we're always doing is just saying, okay, Lord, where next? Who next? And I'm not trying to talk somebody into something. I'm not trying to cut some kind of deal. I'm just literally talking about the goodness of God in my life and inviting somebody else to consider if they would want that same thing for themselves. There will always be people who haven't heard or haven't yet believed in the gospel. And here's what Paul again says in Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's not standing on a box on the corner. That's just looking somebody eye to eye and talking about the difference the gospel has made in your life. 
He goes on to say, how are they to preach unless they are sent? We have been sent, and as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let me tell you the rest of the story. Our friend Joseph. Again, these are Michael Card's words. Joseph, after his first beating, remember, and then he thought about, did I get something wrong? Did I explain Jesus incorrectly? He limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus again. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God. He was pleading with them. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, scattered but not silenced, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time, he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health the entire village had come to Christ. God is doing a good, good work. And he will do it with or without any of us. But can you think of a better way to spend your life however many days you have on this earth than doing that? telling people about their only hope, the hope in which you have placed your trust. Five gospel gains. I don't know which of those might most apply to you right now. You may feel silenced. You may be confronting hostility. You may be struggling with this idea of greatness or ambition. You may feel at odds with other aspects of the church. I, I don't know what it is here, but what response to the gospel outside of the reception that you gave it originally to trust in Jesus, what response to the goodness of the gospel uh, might you need to make today? Take a moment, pray about that, and then I'll close us in prayer.
Stand with me and let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your word, that it is true and enduring. The word of the Lord lasts forever. Lord, would you use your word to teach us, encourage us, correct us, train us. And Lord, would you uh, speak through us as we simply deliver the message that we have believed. Lord, use us to bring about salvation. Thank you for the good work that you're doing in each of us. So many things need to change in all of us. And, uh, Lord, your grace is sufficient. Thank you for being so patient and kind. Lord, help us to apply what we're seeing in the early church in our lives today. I pray that in Jesus' name.